0: Oh, yay. Oh, yay. Oh, The judicial yay. power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court. Unless there is any more question, we have a divided argument in this case. All right. persons having business before
1: the Honorable the Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to give their attention. Welcome to Divided Argument, an unscheduled, unpredictable Supreme Court podcast. I'm Will Bode. And I'm Dan Epps.
0: So who could have predicted three episodes in a week? I did not predict it, Dan, and I yeah. knew we were recording today. I was like promising them on earlier episodes, and you didn't want me to do that because you thought there was no way we could we could actually pull it off. Yet here we are.
1: Well, if we pull it off, I want us to get the element of surprise. Okay.
0: Well, I think people will be surprised because we've overpromised and, and under delivered enough times in the past. I think at this this instance we're at least promising and delivering, neither over nor under. Maybe we're over delivering yeah people will have to tell us
1: our readers are gonna say listeners listeners are gonna say uncle it will not be a
0: two-hour episode i don't think better not be because i gotta leave in like less than two hours so great unless you stay on the mic talking after i leave uh it's gonna be hard for us to get get to that length
1: i never thought of oh we should start doing a thing where i stay on and record outtakes yeah your center controls the, uh, the funding for
0: editing. So, I mean, I couldn't really stop you if you wanted to do that. Yeah. But you're the one who actually sends it to the editors. That's so. true. That's because I, I, I'm the one with, with technological savvy in this operation. Indeed. Although y- you were able to, uh, get all the equipment and do your uh, recording from, uh, from Israel. Like I really thought that wasn't going to work. I wasn't going to say anything, but I thought for sure you would, you would screw up the, the technology purchase or the, you know, you, you, it worked fine. You did great. There were some close calls, I'll just (laughs) say, as I was setting up. Did you have some secret assistance I didn't know about?
1: No, but, you know, like, I didn't have a battery, and then I had to figure out how to run it off my computer's power, and then I originally set up in the laundry room, because that was the one place I, because everybody was asleep, where it wasn't going to be disturbed, but then I did a practice recording, and it sounded like I was, like... Recording in a barrel going Niagara Falls. Well,
0: I think I think people would have excused you that, given you know, that you were going to great lengths to record. Like, I don't know, what time was it? you were recording in the middle of the night? Like,
1: yeah, but Israel. last time, last time I screwed up the audio, you know, a year ago, we would heard about it all summer. That was even worse. You were not
0: recording using a correct mic. Speaking this of sounded Israel, worse. Israel, the uh, the judicial reform that. Um, that you're for for which you were at the protest, uh, you you did not participate in the protest, uh, to my knowledge. That did that did pass, so the protests mm-hmm. protests failed.
1: And now, can the Israeli Supreme Court decide whether that's constitutional? Is that how it works?
0: I don't know. I mean, in theory, like they don't have a like a written constitution, right? They have like a basic law, but it's not like it's like yeah, statutory law.
1: Can they just apply the separation of powers or something and say yeah. this is? I don't know. I mean, I think we're in it's kind of uncharted territory, right? Yeah.
0: That'll be that'll be interesting. Interesting yeah. standoff that we can kind of we can watch from afar without uh, sufficient expertise to uh, to render expert opinions on it. But maybe we can we can find an expert who can inform
1: us. Speaking of jurisdiction stripping issues that we'll talk about someday, there is a pending shadow docket issue at the Supreme Court that we're not gonna talk about today, but I suspect it's gonna happen next few weeks, probably this week. A case called Mountain Valley Pipeline versus the Wilderness Society involving the legality of building this pipeline that senator joe manchin has been moving heaven and earth to make sure it gets built that has some jurisdiction stripping provisions that the fourth circuit might think is unconstitutional and that's now gone to the court on an emergency basis and anyway, just that's no. that's on the radar it might come well, down I will be eagerly awaiting uh, uh developments in that case because uh, alan Trammell and
0: i have our uh, article on jurisdiction stripping that is um being edited right now so maybe if the if the court gives us something interesting to work with we will update our article in light of that so
1: yeah this is good you're uh, among other things you're a jurisdiction stripping expert yeah ish yeah well top 10 <laughs>
0: <laughs> no i'm not going to claim there's a lot of people that have written about jurisdiction stripping okay but i'm not going to promote yeah. myself that that have yet top 100 oh yeah easily <laughs> okay <laughs> just make sure I, we have that i don't know how many i don't i'm not sure there are 100 people who've written about it in the academy so i feel more more comfortable with that
1: Yeah. One other quick piece of uh, follow up to, I guess, what is now two episodes ago, when we were talking about fallout from the affirmative action case, students for fair admissions. And I think we were talking about, you know, can you sue the schools for damages? A listener pointed out some interesting lower court case law that has created a kind of qualified immunity like standard under Title VI and Title IX because those are spending clause statutes. And so the argument goes that the courts. Spending Clause cases, like Penhurst, mean you can't be held liable if the law is not clear. There's currently like an on-bank Second Circuit case about this kind of doctrine um, hmm. comes up in various contexts. So, another interesting uh, Fed Court's wrinkle that could could come out of this someday. Uh, did not know anything about that, and I will be excited to learn about it. it. Gets up to the court. I wouldn't be surprised. All right,
0: should we talk about some other decisions? Yeah, we've, we're uh, slowly uh, marching through our backlog. I don't know how many, I don't know how many of the um, opinions from the end of the term uh, we're going to get through, but you know, we a fair number. We've mm-hmm. we've talked through I don't know four or five of them so far, mm-hmm. and let's add uh, two more okay. to the list today. So one of the last day cases, mm-hmm. which are the the usually the most divisive, most controversial, uh, three hundred three Creative LLC versus Illinus. And which is about, I'm struggling to figure out exactly how to summarize the case that doesn't kind of prejudge what the case is about, because I feel like there's a big debate in the case about what the case is about. How would you describe what the case is about without prejudging the thing that's being the thing that's at issue, the activity that's at issue?
1: I would describe this as a case about the conflict between the free speech clause and state and the discrimination law.
0: Okay. Yeah, I think
1: that's okay. Or you could say there's no conflict. Well, one the potential one have a case—well, you can have conflict. a case about it by saying yeah. there isn't one, or there is one, and if there is one, who yeah. wins?
0: Okay, fair. Less problematic, but maybe less precise uh, as the other ways we could have framed it. Okay, so three o three, creative. Will, you want me to do a problematic one? <laughs> no, no, no. You you say enough problematic stuff as it is, uh, and then the other one, uh, which is uh, Samia versus the United States, which is uh, an interesting kind of you know crimpro case uh, about the confrontation clause. So maybe not. Didn't get quite as much attention as some of the other uh, marquee cases, but I think it's one that's controversial, divisive, uh, and interesting.
1: One of my favorite clauses.
0: Really? Mm-hmm. Do you have a ranking? Not off the top of my head. Is that top probably. 10 or just top 100? Oh. You've probably got a lot of clauses you like, I'm just going to guess.
1: There are a lot of good clauses. Definitely top 10 in the Bill of Rights. Really? The conversation clause? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good one.
0: Top ten. Oh, okay. Because there's I mean, there's a bunch of clauses in the fourth fourteenth uh, Amendment. There's
1: I mean so you mean it like in the original the original Bill of Rights? Of the thing. original eight amendments, okay. which have, you know, then like probably forty clauses or something. Yeah. put it in the it's, top 10. it's it's uh seventy fifth percentile at least. I used to follow the confrontation clause very obsessively and I still still follow the you know, the confrontation clause blog by Richard Friedman. Oh yeah. Uh, which doesn't update often but is just like, you know, A plus content whenever it updates. I, I the case that. law at the court has maybe slowed down a little bit. Thank um, goodness. But okay, which which one first? Well, let's do the confrontation
0: clause first. That's okay, go small and then go big. Okay. How do we ease people into this one? Because I, I feel like there's this is a case where it, it's really a lot about case law that's come before. Sort I mean, of. Oh well, yeah. Well, I mean it's it to understand the issue, the rule that is at stake, you have to understand. Both understand the confrontation clause, but also understand this sort of what's called the Bruton rule, which is kind of a rule arguably well, a prophylactic rule that sort of goes beyond the confrontation clause. Uh,
1: so you teach this stuff, and I have the advantage of not fully understanding the case law. So let me say what I understand the problem to be without the case okay. law, and then you can tell me how the case law works. All right. Two different clauses in the Constitution. One is called the Confrontation Clause of the Sixth Amendment, which says that in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to be confronted with witnesses against him. And one is the Self-Incrimination Clause of the Fifth Amendment, which says that nobody can be compelled to bear witness against themselves in a criminal case. When you try two people at the same time, sometimes you get conflicts between these two clauses, right? Because, as my criminal defense friends would call them, D1, the uh, first defendant, may well want to cross-examine D2, especially in the not uncommon situation where, let's say, D2 has confessed.
0: Yeah, and right. just, just to be clear, this is an issue
1: because... D2
0: has given an out-of-court statement that is going right. to be introduced as evidence. Right. So if, if D2 is testifying when on his own behalf, the court.
1: no problem. Right. But If D2 shows up in court, voluntarily takes the stand and says something, then, then that's the D1 thing can it'll.
0: cross-examine.
1: Right. But if D2 said to the police, you know, yeah, D1 and I did it, right? And then at trial, one very good piece of evidence you can use against D2 is the fact that D2 said, we did it. But D1 is sitting there with this statement saying, hey, we did it. And D1 would really like to cross examine the person who made that statement. And if there were anybody else, anybody else in the world who made like an out of court statement like that, D1 would have a very strong argument to the confrontation clause. Like, you can't just like read this statement saying, I did it without giving me a chance to cross examine that person. Yeah. But that person is also a criminal defendant. And so they can't be cross examined because that would be forcing them to justify. Yeah. Because then D2 has the constitutional right not to. Not to right. testify. Right. Okay. So this must happen all the time. I mean, we don't have that many trials, but in the small subset of criminal cases that go to trial, I assume actually this happens all the time. So when there's, follow- yeah, when when there's, you know, multiple defendants, alleged conspiracy and so forth. Right. Well, and you may even do this on purpose, I guess, right? If if you have two defendants and one of them is confessed, then you might think the prosecution might think it's a really good idea to prosecute these people together because it'll be good to have the, the obviously guilty guy in the room while we're trying to convince the jury this other guy's guilty. Yeah. And other strategic reasons,
0: right? Like the, uh, you don't want to tip your hand about your prosecutorial strategy by having to go through the trial for one before you go through the trial Mm -hmm. for the other, conserve resources, all sorts of reasons why you might want to do that. But yes, the kind of guilt by association and ability to kind of bring in evidence against each is, is advantageous. But, and so we have, we, we, you know, normally we'd, we'd have kind of like the traditional way of just solving this problem, which is very simple and easy. What's that? Which is just say, well, we want to bring in the confession by D2 to be used against D2, which is always okay. Like your own statement can be introduced against you and you don't you don't have like a right to confront yourself,
1: mm-hmm. right?
0: That's no problem. And so the solution is to say, "Well, we're just bringing it in as evidence against D2." And yeah, it does say, the statement did say D1 did it as well, but we'll just tell the jury this little instruction that says, by the way, just don't pay any attention to this with respect to D1.
1: Only consider this as evidence against D2. This
0: is the idea that that we
1: sometimes let in stuff the jury is not supposed to hear. We tell them, don't pay attention to
0: it. We'll tell them, yeah, it's only you're using it for, for this purpose, but not this other purpose. Okay. Right. And in, to the extent that that's, Legitimate and effective, uh, it, it solves the constitutional problem because that means that uh, D2 is no longer a witness against D1, right? So D1, uh, D2 is not a witness against him. D1 then doesn't have any right to confront him.
1: Okay. Uh, okay. D2 is not a witness against him because the jury has been told. Yes. Ignore only them. Only, you, yeah. This is only being used against D2 himself, okay. not against the person.
0: Uh, D1, uh, that was named in the confession. Okay. Okay.
1: I'm not very satisfied with that. Does that really work? Tell me why not. I just don't buy that the jury, that it would work. You just don't buy that you tell the jury, uh, by the way, this other person in the courtroom says D1 is guilty, but pay no attention to that. Yeah. That seems... So I I share your concern about that, although I think it raises a lot of
0: hard questions that we should get to in a second. But the law did come up with a solution or at least a partial solution to this problem. Okay. Which is the Bruton rule. Okay. Which is an older case. And it said that in this situation, you know, sharing your intuition, right? Sharing your intuition that there's just too much risk that the jury is going to put too much weight on it, even if they're told not to. Okay. In this 1968 case Bruton, the court said, you just can't do this. You can't bring in to protect the confrontation clause values, you can't bring in the non testifying co defendant's inculpatory confession that inculpates uh, D1 without confrontation. You just can't do it. Okay. Limiting instruction, basically, it's a situation where we're going to say normally a limiting instruction, an instruction to the jury to to pay no attention, is going to be sufficient to fix all sorts of problems. Yeah. You know, this is a case where we're just going to say, no, that's not good enough. And so you just can't do it. And so the solution is, if you're going to try them together, you just can't use the statement or you can do a separate trial and then can use D2's confession against D2. If D1 confessed, you can use D1's confession against D1, but you can't bring in uh, the other defendants' uh, confessions as evidence of guilt against Mm -hmm. the one who is trying to obtain confrontation. So you like that solution?
1: So if you confessed and you want to go to trial anyway, you really want to get yourself in trial with somebody else. You, your co-conspirator yes unless unless the government can uh, come up
0: with a workaround and that's sort of what this case is about is okay. what kinds of uh, workarounds are possible or what is uh, it may be asked differently what is the the scope of the Bruton rule mm-hmm. right because you know government and uh, lower courts have basically you know tried to come up with various various ways around this. And so one example, most relevant here, there's a case named Gray, where they had introduced the non-testifying co-defendants statement, but they had just like deleted the names, uh, the name of the defendant of D1 Mm -hmm. and just sort of said, well, the confession was like me and deleted went and committed the robbery. Right. Mm -hmm.
1: But it was still and deleted. It wasn't just me. It wasn't just yes. an icon of the there. Right
0: yes, right. so okay. it still was apparent; would have been apparent to the jury that someone else was named, and that whoever it was uh, had been that had been redacted, mm-hmm. right? And in that case, the court says, uh, "No, uh, you still can't can't do that. That's still going to violate Bruton. The jury is just going to be, you know, the jury's the jury is basically the jury is going to know what's happening, right?" Right. Like, you know, like we just, we don't believe that this is actually going to solve the problem. The jury will be able to put the pieces together. And so the
1: uh, Bruton rule should still apply to that. Right. Because you can't say like me and blank. Well, why is blank blank? It's because we can't tell you who it is. Well, who's the one person we can't tell you yeah. who it is?
0: Yeah. and uh, And who is the person that we've been told we should not, you know, pay any attention that, that we should not treat this confession as evidence against. Right. It's D1. Yeah. So I think the juries are going to kind of figure that out. Uh, so I think
1: that's at least as a pragmatic point, yeah. that's that's not crazy. It's interesting to me that we have this general assumption in the law that juries are kind of obedient and do what they're told. <laughs> like we tell them, you know, don't go, 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 don't go Google this case when you're at home or yeah. whatever. And we s- pretend they do that. Here's the legal standard. We pretend they understand that. But in this area, we somehow think, oh, well, we, we just can't take the fiction anymore.
0: Yeah, no, that is uh, that is really really interesting. It's something that that came up a little bit at oral argument, and that uh, resurfaces uh, in the opinion a little bit as we'll talk about in a second. But yeah, throughout the law, you know, various examples. There's stuff that goes wrong, or stuff that juries are going to need to hear for some other reason, and um, we normally say just give the jury an instruction. We're just going to pre- sort of presume as a matter of law that juries follow their instructions, right? And you can kind of understand why we do that because if we didn't, we'd have a lot of really tough questions. Like anytime there's accidentally, there's situations in trial where maybe a witness says something they're not supposed to say. Right. Right. And then all of a sudden there's an objection after it's been said, and then the jury's told, disregard that. Right. And if you were to say, you know, we're just going to assume that juries can't, going to ignore all those instructions. You might have, you know, you might have to reverse or stop trials uh, way more often than you do. maybe. So for practical reasons, that seems hard but for whatever reason uh traditionally that the balance had been stuck yeah different, uh, struck differently in this one in this one area
1: yeah okay okay
0: so i i think uh i think that's i think I'm, that's the setup i'm with you so right? far Okay, so now, and we have another case, Richardson versus Marsh, where the court had sort of not extended, or or maybe not gone uh, further on the Bruton rule that said, look, if the if the statement that's being introduced doesn't kind of directly inculpate the defendant who you know seeks to avail himself of the confrontation clause, it's not it's not going to be a problem.
1: Okay. Well, but that isn't that true. The Gray statement too. It's like me and blank doesn't directly well that was sort of what the debate
0: in the case was about and that same question is going to come back uh, in this case which is uh, you know where do we draw the line right clearly the court has said not every statement that might sort of in some way could still be used by the jury or the jury you know if it ignores this instruction could still look at and still form some opinion about the the guilt of D1 um, that isn't necessarily uh, barred And the question is, sort of, how close are we to one or the other? Mm -hmm. And so here, what happened was, rather than just you know, there was a you know confession that was made by a non-testifying co-defendant. So uh, you have uh, our petitioner in this case, Adam uh, Samia, and he is tried with a couple of other folks, Stillwell and uh, Hunter, and Stillwell had given a confession to a government agent. And in theory, you know, what, what, what the government wanted was for the agent to be able to come in and testify about what Stilwell had said, right. right? And so they couldn't just say, have the agent sort of say like, and then he said that redacted him, you know, committed the crime, right? Instead, what they did was they had the agent testify using the phrase, the other person, and so, yeah. for example, he said, you know, in response to a question from uh, the prosecutor on the stand, he said, he said, Stillwell described a time when the other person he was with pulled the trigger on that woman in a van that he and Mr. Stilwell was driving, right? So rather than saying that Stilwell said that Samia pulled the trigger,
1: he said that other, the other person, right? And so. So this other person and I are driving a van yeah, and the other person pulled the trigger. Okay. Yes. The but I don't say blank. And so they don't know whether the reason I'm saying other person is because it's redacted or because he actually just was vague about who the other person was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and this is,
0: there might be other situations where you actually have kind of like a written statement or something like that, rather than just having a a witness sort of testify to the substance of what was said. You can imagine a different situation where you have an actual like written statement that that has to be modified, redacted in some way for being, let's say, read to the jury. Yeah, that's what happened, and so the question is: Was this uh, a Bruton
1: violation, or is this okay? Is this okay. more, more like, like, yeah, is this more like blank, or is this more like the one where we just like don't mention yeah. the person at all?
0: Yeah, uh, okay. and and you can kind of inferentially maybe reason that it that it that it inculpates the D one, but doesn't directly do so. Okay. And here, brief opinion by Justice Thomas, joined in large part by all the uh, conservative justices, and then in a dissent by uh, Justice Kagan. Uh, Just Spirit writes a short uh, concurrence that we can talk about uh, in a minute. But you know, you have your, your beloved uh, 6-3 conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat split uh, on the court. Short opinion by Justice Thomas. That uh, basically says, you know, describes the problem and sort of says, basically takes the view that in this instance, the kind of curative instruction, the instruction to the jury is is fine. That, you know, in general, uh, we think that those things work. And here we're not going to say
1: that they don't work. Okay. So does this mean that the redacted case, the case where you can't say redacted and I did it. In every case, as long as instead of redacted, you say The other guy, someone else,
0: Mr. X. I think so. I think that's the case. I mean, I guess it would depend on if there's some situation where somehow it's not possible to do that. Okay. And I don't know uh, if that would be the case, but yes, in theory, if there's a way to just modify the confession so that it doesn't sort of have a conspicuous deletion, but just has a modification that says something, that sounds more innocuous, I guess, then it's okay. Now, I have a question about this, though. Um, and this uh, this sort of came up, uh, although uh, a little bit, not exactly the same problem uh, at oral argument. So Justice Gorsuch at oral argument was asking petitioner's counsel, the counsel for the defendant, uh, Cannon Shamagam, friend of the show, about whether at a certain point, limiting what could be introduced in terms of the statement by d2 would actually infringe on d2's due process rights because Why would d2 that be? well because d2 it, the right to present a defense and maybe d2 wants to be able to shed point the finger a little bit at the at another person and mm-hmm. so to the extent that you weren't allowed to even suggest that there was another person present mm-hmm. that that might be problematic the, the opinion doesn't really get into this, and I'm not sure how strong it is because the D2 could always solve the problem by testifying.
1: Well, but but they have a right; they have a right to simultaneously present a defense and not testify. Right? That's yeah. the so they yeah. they want to say they want their lawyer to say, "Look, it was probably D1." Yeah, but then if they haven't been allowed to introduce any statements yeah. by D2, observing that D1 was in the car. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I see the problem. Yeah,
0: it does seem tricky, and you could also imagine. You can imagine a hypo where the more you are actually editing, changing, revising D 2s confession, that that might itself like pose a due process problem, right? If you're you basically are saying that you're using evidence against D two, you're using a statement,
1: but that is actually not the statement D two made. I mean, I don't know if it's a due process problem. I do find yeah. it weird and uncomfortable. I get why we have to. Yeah, except the reality that juries don't accept these statements, but then to, to actually lie to them, to not just yeah. yeah, like, well, to them, but to, to... what kind of problem would it be?
0: <sighs> like, let's if the government just made up a statement, right, and introduced that against a defendant.
1: What clause do you think? I mean, that clearly that, that I don't can't know, be that's that clause. I mean, that's just like wrong and illegal, right? But it's, is it unconstitutional? But, I mean, it's perjury. Okay, yeah, but but just is, is it unconstitutional? I guess we would now say it's a due process violation okay. I, you're willing, I you're willing to concede that no i oh, i said we would say it I, i'm not saying i would say it well we who's we the, law, me? the court but okay well i'm mean, sorry this is my hobby. you know there are all these cases where like the prosecutor gets up and like says ridiculous nasty things a closing argument and those are always a due process violation and i've always Thought it was a little weird that those were. Should it be anything, or should it be great? Not sure anything. I mean, they're not, both not great and not anything. It could just be against the rules. of Evidence you should be sanctioned for it. Illegal. We could have statutes about them. I'm just not sure. It renders you so you don't. You're not a fundamental fairness guy. I am a fundamentally unfair guy. But the confrontation clause—that's a real constitutional clause. We're yes. Sure there are better solutions to this, Dan. I, I feel like I've thought of three just sitting here.
0: Okay. Is one of them separate trials? Yes. Okay. What else? What else have you got?
1: Well, what's wrong with that one?
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm fine with it. It does, it, you know, like it, it's more work for the prosecutor. It's more resources, sure. more work for the judicial system. It does give an advantage, as in the court flags. It gives an advantage to whoever is lucky enough to go second. Yeah, right. we should say the, the
1: guy who confessed has to go first and the guy who didn't confess goes second because
0: – But sometimes sometimes they, they both confessed and you want to use wow. each of them against the other.
1: Okay. Then maybe we – okay, that brings me to my second one. Maybe we can have the trials at the same time, but separately. So there's a couple ways to do that. So you could just have two rooms next to each other, move the witnesses back and forth, right? But like neither neither of them would be able to watch the person's trial because would be in their own trial. Or if that's too much work, have one trial with two juries. And then when the mm-hmm. when stuff that D1's jury is not supposed to hear happens, like get D1's jury out of the room. And then when the stuff D2's jury is not supposed to hear, get them out of the room and there are parts of the trial they both can watch then you actually avoid the contamination problem.
0: And That's it's a little so, more work because you need twice yeah. as many
1: jurors, but only yeah, one Yeah, that seems, that, seems, that seems better. I like that one. I think somebody why, else came up with that one. I don't remember yeah. who was, but I don't know why we can't just do that. It's, it, it feels too hokey, it's a problem. And the current courtrooms don't have room for two juries.
0: That's Although, That seems like a solvable problem.
1: I think some of them were modified during COVID, Have have a lot more space yeah. when people were like trying to hold yeah. trials during physical distancing, so you could always uh, yeah, find room for a second jury. Okay, Well. Okay. third option is, and this is the other. Okay, I thought uh, we already did three. Okay. Wait, separate trials, same trial, separate trial. Okay. So, yeah. so, and then simultaneous trials. That was-, I, that was. Simultaneous trials was a was a joke suggestion. Oh, really? Um, I, I took that seriously. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I mean, okay. It, it was a, su- a sub part of separate trials. Okay, okay. Yeah. Can't we just use immunity grants? So I've, I've always thought it was weird, and this is a mm-hmm. hobby horse of my criminal procedure professor Akhil that the Confrontation Clause does not give the defendant... The defendant supposedly (laughs) has the right to uh, confront witnesses against them and also to compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in their favor where they can subpoena people. But the one thing they don't get that the government gets is the government, when it wants to put on the stand somebody who has Fifth Amendment rights, the government is allowed to do a workaround where they say, well, you, you have to testify and we won't use it against you. Yeah. So couldn't we do that? Couldn't we... Say the defendant gets to force the D1, gets to force D2 to take the stand, confront them, and just give them immunity. In the same trial?
0: I, don't, I feel like you still need to pair this with any other solutions, because it, it just recreates a different problem, right? If you say D2 has to testify at the trial, despite at his own trial, despite assertion of his privilege to remain
1: silent? But yeah, we'll just tell the jury to ignore it.
0: How is that? In, how does, doesn't that just solve one problem by creating
1: another problem of exactly the same magnitude? Well, I feel like a confrontation clause versus a due process. I feel the confrontation clause is more important. So, more if important we have than to, the Fifth Amendment privilege? Yeah. Why? Yeah,
0: d- definitely. That's that's completely arbitrary. Fifth Amendment privilege is is a it's, it's earlier,
1: last in time. The the last in time <laughs> controls.
0: <laughs> that doesn't. That's not. This is not a rule of constitutional interpretation you have ever believed
1: until this minute. But do you actually believe that? No. Well, you don't believe that. That. that I mean, look I, look, I I don't believe the last in time argument. I mean, okay. I think so, it is sometimes true that the last in time controls, but it's more. But they're, they're not in conflict. They're just different. Right. Yes. If they're in conflict, the last in time controls. No, it's more like, I, I guess right now it seems like we are, there's a conflict. We are limiting the, the confrontation clause rights in the name of the self incrimination clause. Yeah. So I would think it was equally legitimate to do it the other way around
0: well unless there's no conflict right and which the court the court thinks in this situation there's not a conflict because you give the instruction and therefore that means the other defendant is not a witness d2 is no longer a witness against d1 therefore right. everything's
1: fine no and similarly, if you gave an instruction the immunity instruction to d2's jury and said none of this cross-examination is against d2 that would also be fine Because D two is not bearing witness against himself. Yes,
0: but I just don't know why that's
1: better. Well, uh, whether it's the point is it's no worse, and then we've got a normative choice of which
0: it might be worse. I mean, so for example, like typically, you know, one of the main reasons defendants don't want to testify is because if they do, uh, their testimony can be impeached using like prior convictions, right? Subject to some, there's you know some limits on this.
1: Not against them, only against others.
0: Hmm. But again,
1: all this would be not admissible against them.
0: I, I understand, but I just, like, I'm not persuaded that this somehow, like, decreases the net amount of, like, harm in
1: the courtroom. I think it just shifts it around. Right. Well, I guess I in the case, so here's the thing. In the case where one of the two defendants has a much stronger claim of actual innocence than the other. Now, again, sometimes they both confess. Sometimes there are events of guilt or innocence that's apart from the confession. But in the case where one of them is very likely has a yeah. credible confession that is very likely guilty and one of them has a much stronger case that the other one is lying it seems to me that we if there were two equally available rules it seems like we ought to have the rule that privileges the right of the possibly innocent person to prove their innocence yeah. although in every case but yeah and that's why i like the conversation goes better it seems to me that the self-incrimination clause sometimes it protects the innocent often it protects the guilty it's a fine clause maybe a little outdated uh reflects a <laughs> theology we don't really believe in anymore I and mean, it's a standard view i think yeah but the confrontation clause like seems to reflect an ideal of like innocence and due process and the the possible the trial is truth-seeking that we still very much do believe in so if we were forced to choose i would choose the confrontation clause okay well the court doesn't buy
0: that there's a choice yeah the court the court seems to think we can have all of our constitutional rights. This is interesting, right? Because you have this majority opinion that just sort of says, look, court of instructions mostly solve, really just solve the problem. And, you know, that is a rationale that basically seems to undermine Bruton itself, right? Mm-hmm. And that Justice Kagan sort of says that in her mm-hmm. in her opinion. She sort of says, look, this is really like all, you know, maybe Bruton itself is next on the chopping block. In terms of uh, the conservative majority's, you know, drive to overturn precedent, and she's not wrong that the reasoning in this opinion seems equally forceful with respect to with respect to Bruton. But it's it's interesting because in sort of trying to show that like these curative instructions, you know, are, are sort of generally seen as okay,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the majority makes this sort of like vague gesture at history.
1: I mean, it's not vague. They cite some stuff.
0: Yeah, but, but it's but the, in a way that's that's kind of. Arbitrary, and that so Justice Barrett writes this separate opinion, sort of saying, like, look, you know, we got to be a little bit more careful with how we're using history, and the history that the majority is using seems kind of arbitrary. Because specifically, what the what the uh, the court does is it's looking at like kind of a early twentieth century evidence practice, uh, evidence treatise, and uh, some cases from the late nineteenth century, right? In situations where uh, you know courts in the treatise said, you know you can introduce stuff like this and just give a curative instruction. Right. Yeah. But those are not, none of that was confrontation clause case law. Right. The rules of evidence case law. Yeah. And justice spirit, I think fairly sort of says like, why are we picking those out? Those do not bear on the kind of like meaning stuff in the late 19th century doesn't really bear on the meaning of a, you know, part of the bill of rights. If we're looking at those, why aren't we looking at stuff from the 1940s and, uh, she says, look, I would just prefer to just say history is indeterminate here, right? What do you think? Is she, is she
1: right? I love this opinion. Yeah. I mean, I do think it displays a level of care with the citation of historical sources that is unusual for us for justice, like maybe it's, it's holding them to a higher standard than they normally can meet, because I do think the usual attitude is like, oh, yeah, 18, 1881, that's that's pretty original, right? That's, that's like a long time ago. Yeah. No. <laughs> Yeah, so I think both points are good. Both the question of you know these like two to four decades after the after the founding, how relevant are those? And the second point about the conflation of confrontation clause and, and rules of evidence, I think is you know very important. Maybe maybe further reaching than she acknowledges, because I think this was this was when I first got into the confrontation clause. I was thinking of writing an article, sort of a critique of the Crawford line of cases that it may be engaged in that kind of conflation of mm-hmm. of the rules of evidence with the confrontation clause that that it really might be that the it's the rules of evidence that tell you who has to be in court and not like the hearsay rule and the confrontation clause is more about like what do you do with the stuff that the people that show up in court yeah um, which i think was wigmore's view once upon a time but um, but it was about I'm, testifying witnesses yeah that, that that there are like two different there are two different rules one is the hearsay rule that most testimony has to be offered in person, and the other is the confrontation clause rule: the testimony that's offered in person has to be cross-examined, and that it might be that the Constitution constitutionalizes the second, but not the first. And so, and would that mean
0: that so that one of the premise of you know the recent confrontation clause revolution was that the confrontation clause exists to kind of like stop the stuff that happened in the trial of Sir Walter
1: Raleigh? Yeah, it would mean that that that's premises, well, the thing is, a lot of different stuff happened in the trial, so Walter Raleigh, rally yeah. and the premise that all of it was made yeah. unconstitutional. But it, it would be the, you know, the, the use of out of court statements,
0: you know, uh, which he's, you know, he says he's right. shouting like, you know, oh, you know, bring my accuser to my face or whatever, whatever yeah. it is. Right. Right. That would not be actually.
1: That, that would be the idea. Now I'm not sure it's right. It's part of the reason I abandoned yeah. it. This was sort of a hypothesis. And as I started to dig into it, I was just really not sure, um, anymore what the right answer was. Yeah. So. You know, but I remain interested (laughs) Um, and I like the results of the current doctrine. So, yeah, it's interesting though, because
0: I think, you know, if you're, if you're really taking this, this issue seriously from an originalist perspective, I think isn't, is what the case is really about is like, what does it mean to be, for someone to be a witness against you? Right. Is is, Is that really what the case is boiling down to? Like, is someone a witness against you if they're testifying? At your trial, but the jury's told, you know, ignore this. Yes. That's basically, that's sort of the question, right? Because if, because if, I think we can agree that if the, if D2, if we think D2 is actually a witness against D1. Right. It can't come in. Correct. Absent confrontation. Correct. Okay. But then I, I feel like the, neither, the majority nor does the spirit really ever grapple like clearly explain that question like, like like answer that question they sort of just say you know curative instructions are good and fine but like it's far from clear whether that would have been the original understanding of this provision given that like you know the, the, the sort of rules of evidence have gotten a lot more sophisticated since the founding Yeah right And so in, the majority itself doesn't seem to have a lot of like great, stuff showing that like these kinds of this the situation arose a lot you know in the yeah you know late
1: 19th century so so although Late, late 18th century i mean there is this passage at page six the majority opinion that goes by pretty quick where it sort of describes the basic crawford rule and then says nonetheless the confrontation clause applies only to witnesses quote against the accused unquote crawford and then quotes this richardson case Ordinarily, a witness whose testimony yeah. is introduced at a joint trial is not considered to be a witness against a defendant if the jury is instructed to consider that testimony only against a co-defendant. Yeah. So I guess that's there. Yeah. I mean, it's just a incorporating a quote from previous precedent rather than. Yeah. It's not. But it's, it's not doing the kind of the kind of
0: originalist dive you might you might accept expect. Yeah. If you dig back, that is, you know, the Richardson case uh, is a Scalia opinion, so it it itself has a little bit uh, originalist uh, pedigree but if you look back at that opinion it's a very short opinion and it itself does not do any kind of kind of real originalist work to justify that rule about jury instructions it just cites a bunch of 20th century case law yeah so it seems like we don't really have you know a, a re- originalist justice really doing that work yeah the kind of the original meaning of witnesses against yeah and yeah. and whether you know you know, whether it would have been understood, you know, these kind of jury instructions would have been understood, you know. How widely were they
1: used at the time of the founding? I have no idea. Yeah, it's also interesting, I guess, see, you know, a lot of these cases are 14th Amendment cases. Then so we also have to ask about, you know, the Privilege of Immunities Clause in 1868. This is not, this is a, a federal case. So, yeah, we'd really need to know at the time of the founding, which is even harder to harder to figure out. Yeah. Yeah, That's. I just, I mean, this goes back to the, you know, when I was saying that doing ridiculously unjust, fundamentally unfair things might not violate due process, uh it's the same kind of problem of like what subset of bad illegal or should be illegal stuff that happens at trial is also unconstitutional is actually kind of a tricky problem because mm-hmm. there's like overlapping clauses and how much of it do they govern and how much of it is like you know not good but governed by something else i find I find it tricky. We can't just say everything bad is a due process violation. Well, there's a there's a honorable tradition of that. <laughs> but, you think it's a dishonorable tradition? Not everything bad is a due process violation. Not everything bad is unconstitutional. But I understand the temptation to say that.
0: Okay, so where are you in this? Um, you sounded more receptive to petitioner than than one might uh, expect, given where the the uh, the many originalist justices land on this one.
1: I guess I'm unsatisfied. It's not that I find the other side that much more satisfying, but I'm just unsatisfied with the whole frame, I guess. So I kind of get it. I, you know, I get it, but I don't understand why why these are the only options on the table. So I guess I would be concurring in the judgment. In an appropriate case, we should ask why do these cases have to be? You know, if there's a conflict between two constitutional rights. Why is it not the merely judicial administ- the merely judicial administration principle of, of joint trials that has to go, right? Because there's no constitutional yeah. clause that says, oh, hold trials jointly. But but that I mean that's only necessary if you think there's a conflict and the majority thinks there's no conflict, right? I think there's no conflict at all.
0: Well that's what it I says. It, it says look 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 if if you buy the move that you're that the D two is not a witness against D one once you have the instruction, then that's that's the end of the story, right?
1: if you, well, if so, you, if you so believe guess, that. So let me ask this. In a, in a non-joint trial, would the same <laughs> stuff be allowed? <laughs> like introduce it, but then say ignore it? Well, if they say ignore it, uh, yeah, introduce well, it. It, it, say, it
0: would in the sense that if it was erroneously omitted and then the trial court, you know, realized it halfway through and then gave the instruction, that might save the trial,
1: right? Well, what if they just said, like, we're going to hear a bunch of stories from the DEA witness about some, you know, some people. <laughs> Some people he apprehended for for we're just going to hear them. Don't consider them now. Maybe again, it might violate the rules of evidence. it would be more prejudicial than probative, but it wouldn't under the majority's theory. It wouldn't violate the Constitution if a state if a state said our practice is to let the DEA officer testify about other people's crimes. I don't think the court would. I don't think even in a state the court would let that happen.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, it's 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 more of like a smell test kind of thing. It's like it's like why would you be doing this? But for your desire to violate the confrontation clause, right?
1: Sure. Okay.
0: But I, yeah, formally
1: they seem to be saying that that's sufficient. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and it might happen if there are a bunch of dots. I mean, you can imagine yeah. it happening. There's a bunch of. I don't know. This is just. Yeah. You know, this is this is your area, Dan. What do you think?
0: I don't know. I mean, I think that like I'm receptive, very receptive to the kind of like functional. Reasoning underlying the Bruton rule, right? Which is that I do think you know there's a lot of reason to think, with some evidence of this, that's this powerful. That just telling the jury don't don't pay any attention to this. I you know I don't know whether you can really expect them uh, to be able to do that. I think I would find it hard to do that. I would like to just say I'm going to pay no attention to this this evidence against this person, but I'm going to put a lot of weight on it with respect to this other person who's on trial. That seems that seems hard. That said, I. I do think and this is sort of sort of one thing you were saying and something that comes up in the opinion which is that there are a lot of other places where we agree that we indulge the fiction that the jury follows its instructions and it does seem maybe arbitrary to to choose to ignore that here and not elsewhere but on the other hand I do also think that you know part of the reason why the government might seek joint trials is particularly to get this advantage right even if everyone knows that, yes, uh, you know, jury's been given instruction that really part of what this is about is being able to get this confession in.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do, I will give the, I would give the majority. There are lots of reasons I can imagine the prosecutors will want to have joint trials, less burden on the witnesses, the, the risk that the defense lawyers will watch the first trial. And, yeah. And, you know, um, kinds of things, but.
0: But, but in general, you know, there's uh, you know lots of observers say, you know, one reason they like joint trials is, is the ability to use other kinds of evidence, evidence that's admissible only against one, that still the jury is going to kind of inform the jury how the jury thinks about it. And the jury will kind of get confused. There's going to be a lot of different evidence coming in, and sure, it's going to be told this this relates to D2, and this relates to D3, and this relates to D1. The kind of overall cumulative effect may make the jury more likely to convict each of the defendants. Right, And so I, I guess... I guess to the extent that, you know, we don't seem to have, like, even if you're take, coming at this from an originalist perspective, to the extent that as far as I can tell, we don't have any conclusive evidence one way or the other on, you know, how to how broadly to interpret that, you know, you know witness against component of the Sixth Amendment. I think this might be a situation where we have to, you know, uh, do a little bit more, you know, balancing or trying to figure out what's going to kind of best protect the values underlying the amendment. Right. Mm-hmm. If we if we don't have a clear answer to that question, we at least need to figure out like which side are we gonna err on, on which side are we gonna err? Does that does that make sense? Well, like if we're not sure whether this should count as an originalist matter, if we're not sure whether this this should count as testimony against
1: the defendant. Yeah. Should we maybe well, say, well, and where, where do you come from that? What is, what is the purpose of the Sixth Amendment and what do you think? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think
0: here the underlying purpose of the Sixth Amendment, like, isn't really like, there's not really a debate about that. We're sort of taking the Sixth Amendment for granted, and the question is just, how far does it go? If the point is to precisely to, if we'd be super, super, super troubled by bringing in this uh, statement against the defendant in a solo trial, yeah. then if we think this is a situation where we're not sure whether it should count, whether, whether this actually formally you know violates the text of the rule, we just don't have clear answers on that, then maybe we should err on saying, yeah, it probably does violate the rule. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Is there any? So, is there anything left of Bruton after this? Yeah, I mean, so you can't, you know, you you still can't admit the directly inculpatory confession, uh, and you still can't admit the uh, statement with the um, conspicuous deletion. But I think most of the time you're going to be able to solve the Bruton problem this way, right?
1: I think so. I mean, again, maybe maybe it does depend on the the length and detailed nature of the confession, and whether or yeah. not. You know, whether or not you can really solve it with it, just like the other guy. And if it's like a Compute. videotape or something, that might make it more complicated. I was trying to figure that out. But a videotape might be admissible. Re- yeah. I mean, a it could be
0: being admitted for some other purpose, but you'd still have the same problem, right? Which is even if the jury is being told to consider it for a different reason.
1: Well, a videotape's not a witness, is it? Well, I
0: mean, I guess it's, the a, the videotape. it's a, neither is a written statement, right? Neither is, neither is the, you know, I mean, it's a statement. So, it's not a court statement, right?
1: All right. So there's a videotape of D1 and D2 committing the crime.
0: Oh, yeah. But I, I mean, a, a I videotape a, confession by D2 oh, in, in okay. the police, right? That's what I mean. I, like they, they, they get, rather yeah, than yeah. having an officer, an yeah. agent sort of say, here's what D2 told me, we actually yeah. have D2 on tape, right? Yeah. The kind yeah. of thing that you would totally want to admit all the time, right? But normally yeah. you can't admit a recording of a witness against yeah. the, I mean, that, that's what that's like what you know. Yeah. The core core Crawford cases are about, like the nine one one calls
1: and stuff. Like, Do you think we could make the defendant D two dub it <laughs> out of court? That would violate Creative three hundred three,
0: compelled speech. <laughs> Brilliant segue. All right, are we good on the segue? Or is there anything more to say about this? Uh, one other, I guess. One other thing we didn't really talk about. Um, there was kind of a uh, short, separate dissent by uh, Justice mm-hmm. Jackson.
1: She's done um, a lot of solo defense.
0: So yeah, she's she's getting in the mix. The it was kind of interesting. It was it, it was sort of picked up on something that came up at Role Argument. I actually sort of picked up a, a question that I think sort of originated with Justice Sotomayor. But she basically, all she's trying to do is like reframe the issue mm-hmm. uh, in the case, which is she's trying to, she says, well, the majority says Bruton is an exception to a default rule that we, you know, assume that juries follow their instructions, but she sort of is instead saying, no, the default rule is the confrontation clause and the question whether, you know, this is a statement, you know, in general that would violate the confrontation clause. And the question is whether under these circumstances, the the curative instruction causes an exception to that clause, Mm -hmm. right? It's kind of just like a framing
1: choice. I don't know. Yeah the majority skips over the first question today. It's analysis assumes there's no six limit problem in the first place. Yeah. It does. I mean, that quote from Richardson looked like it's not just assuming it looks like the cases actually say there's no. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I didn't really buy that. This was pointing out like an analytic mistake so much as just like a totally, you know, kind of a different, you know, view of the cathedral, right. Just a different perspective um, to see this from.
1: Yeah. And look, the sense she's saying, she is also a constitutional, a confrontation clause fundamentalist. And just, you know, thinks we ought to start from the premise. That that's a much more important yeah. clause that I'm, you know, I'm right there with her.
0: Okay. But, you know, I thought it was, that it was a pretty good uh, cake and dissent. Not, not super, super long, but she does have, you know, that I think the most notable thing is her thing to the end that I mentioned about sort of saying one might wonder after reading today's decision, whether Bruton is the next precedent on this court's chopping block. So mm-hmm. by saying the next, I mean she's sort of alluding to her broader set of critiques she's made about how eager the majority is uh, in terms of overturning precedent.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but she says,
0: uh, you know, basically says we they don't need to do that, right? Because this, you know, we can now basically always get around Bruton.
1: <laughs> right, right. They need not overrule Bruton because yeah. they have reduced it to a formality. Yeah, effectively yeah. done so. Okay.
0: Uh, I think that's enough about that one. Yeah. Let's do let's do a more hot button case. Okay. An easier case. Is it? Yes. Okay. I don't think people will like you saying that, but I guess it depends on using what direction. Yeah, 303 uh creative, which as you said is a case about the conflict between the the conflict or not between uh the First Amendment and uh state uh public accommodations laws. Yeah. Say more about that.
1: So, there've been a lot of cases about this in the past, including one that the court had and decided on other grounds a few years ago when just as kennedy was in the court masterpiece cake shop right Uh, i think one of the first of these cases is from new mexico called elaine photography it's there you know the florist the photographer the calligrapher the website designer the cake baker but the you know they're all variations of the question of a, a service provider who provides some kind of service and does not wish to provide some kind of service uh, for a same-sex wedding Yeah, in the face of various state and discrimination laws. And mm-hmm. here, we have a, well, supposedly, we have a website designer, uh, Ms. Smith, who will one day design wedding websites, although she has yeah. not currently never do done so yet. We can talk about that. Yeah. We have the state of Colorado, last known to us for its appearance in Masterpiece Cake Shop, you know, again. And we have the question of, does she have to make Websites for same sex weddings, and even like, what does that mean? So, yeah. you know, an argument. There was a lot of specific questions about. I think. I think her view and the court's view is, she is happy to make a website for a same sex couple if it's not about a same sex wedding. Like, the same sex couple wants, you know, to make a website for their dog or a website for their friend's wedding or something. That's fine. And there was even some debated argument uh, about, you know, maybe if the website just like, you know, if she continued to put her Christian beliefs on those websites um you know i am against same sex marriage here's a same sex wedding i think she would not do that but there was some dispute you know with the state of whether that would violate the statute or not and there's some dispute throughout the case whether to think of this as somebody who discriminates against gay couples yeah. or somebody who makes websites for weddings and has a yeah. view about what those websites should say yeah yeah and that really i think how you answer that kind of resolves the case
0: is that fair whether you think this is about you know a rule that says you have to serve all people legally regardless of this status, or a rule that says you
1: have to say stuff. Well, the second one, maybe it would or wouldn't be easy, right? Sorry, the first one. Yeah. A rule about serving all people regardless of their status. Like we know federal law says that you can't discriminate on the basis of race in, you know, all sorts of public accommodations, right? And we know that people even argued back in the civil rights era that their religion or their identity or their expression you know as opposed to having an integrated lunchroom and the court was like no you can't do that we don't care about that mm-hmm. sexual orientation discrimination there's a later case called dale where the boy scouts of america were covered by a public accommodation ordinance the theory that like the boy scouts were public accommodation and they were given a first amendment exception at least as to the scout masters because yeah. that did implicate their sort of expressive message so that's like a weird line of cases you might have to get yeah. into But the way the core frames is, this is easier than that. This is not a case about customer identity. It's a case about compelled speech, right? Now, it's true that the correlation between the set of people who want websites about same-sex weddings and the set of people who are gay or lesbian is very, very high. Regardless, formally, it's a case about compelled speech. And that framing, or at least that particular move you just made,
0: uh, makes Justice Sotomayor uh, in dissent, I'd say, furious. Yeah, okay this idea that you're treating these the, the distinction that you're drawing there uh, in a in a way to kind of like yeah to not frame this as you know discriminating against a certain set of customers
1: just just doesn't hold any water and do you think that's right so i, I mean there are lots of versions of this but like yeah. take the nazi bookseller right so I, I imagine a bookseller who only sells books with like large swastikas emblazoned on the cover like puts them there if the book doesn't already have one. And then, you know, somebody says, you're you're discriminating against Jewish customers. You're not letting us buy books. And the Nazi, guest, and the Nazi book says, you're welcome to buy the books with the swastikas on them. And the Jews say, no, we're not going to buy books with swastikas on them. And he says, okay, fine. So that's on you. D- does I mean, maybe Joseph Sotomayor has the same reaction. Obviously, I don't really want to buy these books, but I'm probably not a good business model. But is that anytime you sell a product that you know that a particular class doesn't want to buy. Are you discriminating against the class? It's such a preposterous example. It's I'm to get trouble having trouble engaging with it. But
0: I mean, okay. I think there's some pork.
1: Maybe I put pork in everything.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. That's interesting. That there, you know, you're just saying uh, this is this is a product that we sell, and it turns out that some of the customers are just not going to be interested in it.
1: Uh, I and mean, she mean, says on purpose. Right. She like, says
0: apparently a gay or lesbian couple might buy a wedding website for their straight friends. This logic would be amusing if it were not so embarrassing. I suppose the heart of Atlanta motel could have argued that black people may still rent rooms for their white friends. What do you think about that as a response that, you know, you know, going back to, you know, one of the very classic civil rights era cases where the court, you know, upheld, uh, you know, uh, public accommodations law, barring uh, racial discrimination. Is that, is that different? If you say we'll, we'll we'll rent a room to anybody,
1: we just won't let you stay here if you're black. That does seem different. I mean, yeah, it seems like you can't do that. Now, maybe part of the problem is that rooms are not expressive. Yeah, so it's harder to say. It. It's about like the content, the expressive content yeah. of the room. Exactly. Would that be and more it, like saying we'll let anybody buy our pork,
0: but we won't let Jewish people eat it or something? Maybe that's analogies the rapidly get yeah they
1: rapidly get out of control. That's why, in some ways, the the majority's framing seems to make make it an easier case because I guess they can say we don't have to get into they don't have to get into the full question of how to slice the like customer versus the activity. Yeah, Um, because they can say, you know, when it comes to like selling websites, newspapers, books, you know, the speaker gets to decide what's in them. So, how far?
0: do you think lower courts are going to run with this case? I mean, this is sort of the the thing about the Supreme court cases is that we have these cases that in theory, they, you know, apply to sort of the limited factual context when they're decided, but because the court doesn't hear that many cases, they end up influencing a much, you know, broader set of issues, fact patterns than the court can actually, can actually address. And so I I think maybe that's, kind of the problem here, which is that um, even if the court says, look, this is just this narrow thing about compelled speech, there's still the danger that this will end up, you know, being expanded by lower courts far beyond the specific factual context.
1: I do think that happens. I mean, I do think there's a way in which, like, especially, maybe especially in this area of, like, the sort of gay rights law, especially, there's, like, this, the, the actual doctrinal holdings of the cases, and then there's sort of the, the vibes and the signals and the trends. Yeah. And so there've been a ton of these cases in the lower courts. The vast majority of them go against the, the service providers. And, you know, starting a few years ago, the court clearly became interested in stepping into that. That's why they granted masterpiece cake shop. And then I do think there's a way in which like the Supreme court having signaled, you know, the tide is too far in that direction probably would cause a number of lower courts to change, even though, they're not all going to be cases as easy as this one. I mean, this one is especially easy because sort of all the facts are stipulated. And so many of the hard questions are stipulated away. This is expressive. This is... And so I'm sure some lower court judges will say, "Ah, well, this case is different. But at least some will, this will kind of reset the the gestalt. Yeah. And Um, it seems like that
0: matters a lot, right? Uh, If you start saying, well, any... I mean, because you could imagine, you know, courts saying, well, anytime you provide a service to someone that involves speaking, providing the service suggests sort of approval of the conduct, Yeah, right?
1: And like selling a wedding dress to a gay person. uh, Right, Right. and it's definitely not resolved by this case, right, this case is much narrower, but I think you're totally right that it will, I mean, at the risk of a problematic analogy, Right. The, I mean, part of the initial litigation strategy leading up to the dismantling of, of separate but equal before Brown versus Board was to bring these cases on kind of like very narrow, clear factual grounds, like this university, you know, and win a kind of a a win, a narrow factual win, but a win. And then, you know, those wins, those wins can pile up and, and lower courts can start to connect the dots and expand them in various ways. And I'm sure that the Alliance Defending Freedom has a similar I don't I don't know what their Brown versus of education is, but I'm sure they have a similar idea. And while well, this is this one is narrow, it'll be the first yeah. step and yeah. I mean how far do you think the
0: majority would be willing to go?
1: Well so even I expect the majority doesn't agree, they may not know. So did you notice I don't think the majority talks about what if this were the same case, but it's interracial marriage rather than gay marriage? Yeah. Yeah. This Which is this is like this is the this standard is the, the
0: tough thing about all these is these cases, is you know, you have to be able to answer that question, or at least you have to think about the answer to that question, because maybe it should matter legally, maybe it shouldn't. It might not matter legally. And if that's the case, it really is going to put your intuitions to yeah. the test. So- because basically, because everybody has to agree. Like I just, as a matter, you have to just like, to participate in, you know, our like polity, right. At this point, like you're not allowed, I think, I think you're basically not allowed to say, you know, I think it would be okay to like, that I think like, like, I think you're not allowed to kind of sympathize with, you know, people who are against interracial marriage. Right. And say like, yes, that would be, you know,
1: opposition to that would be constitutionally protected. At least it's I mean, a lot harder to say that, right? Well, I, I'm sure Justice Gorsuch thinks that. I'm sure Justice Gorsuch would say we protected the Nazis marching in Skokie. Yes, yeah. we would also protect the person who says I yeah. personally object to interracial marriage.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not and, saying. I guess I'm not saying right. no one would believe there's First Amendment rights. Yeah. There. I'm just saying it just it makes it a lot harder. I think yeah. because we think there's two different issues. One is which we kind of acknowledge. Yeah, gay rights. There's a majority view. Most people think that there are pro-gay rights at this point in society, but there's a really, really big contingent of people who are not on board yet. Whereas, I th- you know, 90 some percent, I mean, a very, very large percentage of people are now okay with interracial marriage.
1: It, if that. you think interracial marriage should not be legal, you're some weird bigot who we, yeah. might, who we might allow to speak, yeah, uh, but only because you're some weird bigot yeah. that we can kind of like safely put out there with the yes, yeah. That's yeah. our. I bet Justice Kavanaugh, I bet thinks the interracial marriage case is different. I bet he would say now our constitutional history and the constitution itself suggest you know there are special concerns around eradicating the vestiges of Jim Crow.
0: And- what would the what would the doctrinal route be? Because like the uh, First Amendment doesn't draw a distinction there. Right. Well, would it be strict scrutiny, like somehow the law would survive strict scrutiny if it was aimed at racial discrimination?
1: I mean, one of the interesting features of Justice Gorsuch's opinion is it's largely devoid of doctrine. Yeah. So maybe, right? So maybe you'd say And we don't even, right, so maybe it would say, yes, exactly, that's a compelling state interest, and eradicating opposition to same-sex marriage is not a compelling state interest. I'm not even positive if strict scrutiny lets you get around compelled speech. Sometimes compelled speech is just taken to be a, like, a categorical bar, a strict scrutiny thing, but, or you just say the constitution itself, you know, in the interracial marriage case, there are competing constitutional values, whereas... Yeah, I mean, it's a little awkward. I, I don't think there are satisfying answers to these things, but that—that's what makes this one again yeah. sort of an easy case for the majority, yeah. even if uh, it raises a lot of questions. Yeah,
0: but I mean, so, but just imagining, try to imagine a kind of a wedding vendor case. Yeah, that isn't speech speechy? Like, you know, well, the things things you know. I don't know if you guys had a traditional kind of elaborate wedding reception, but you've got to like rent forks right i think the forks were, so well i mean you know you have to rent stuff right you have to rent chairs okay right. so, so there's all so these the different case. vendors
1: right so so there's the we already had the cake case and we already yeah. saw the court unable yeah. to figure out yeah is a cake think, speech right right and i think like maybe a chair, custom,
0: renting a chair is not speech
1: custom cakes are but non-custom cakes aren't yeah. i think then wasn't it just as kagan who said like why is it that the the cake is speech but the buffet is probably not speech <laughs> yeah <laughs> You know, does it depend on the buffet? And I don't know the band. Presumably, the band is speech, mm-hmm. right? And but then is the but chair? Give me the chair rental. That's not the, speech. The, the chair rental, not speech. Sure. Okay. Right. What yeah. is the
0: court if if the Christian wedding dot com doesn't want to rent the chairs to the gay wedding?
1: I think they really have to rent the chairs unless they have some. F- I mean, we will eventually have to decide if there's a free exercise right too. Yeah. But assuming uh, we're just on speech grounds, I think rental dot com would lose. Yeah. Now, if they put on the chairs some biblical quote that is objectionable to gay couples, that starts to get them in a. They might have a right to put the quotes on the chairs. Yeah. And if Colorado says you got to take the quotes off the chairs because you have a hostile environment to sexist sex couples, then it's a different case. But I do. I look. I find this artificial. Like, There's a way in which everything at the wedding is expressive, right? The whole thing is a the whole thing yeah. is a ceremony. It's an yeah. elaborate play, in which the the costumes, the scenery, like yeah. that's all. But it doesn't mean that every vendor supplying services to the wedding is expressive, right? Well, interestingly, as another thing that was that was stipulated was that the speech involved was yeah. uh, Ms. Smith's speech, and I think there is an interesting set of questions for all the a lot of these, like whose speech is it? Yeah, so i I am not sure the court will take more of those wedding speech cases, or whether this is kind of like, like let them make their point. Yeah. There is going to continue to be kind of a move to kind of keep pushing,
0: keep pushing on anti-discrimination law. I haven't had a chance to dig into it, but about a month ago, Fifth Circuit panel said that RIFRA provided a defense to Title VII gender orientation discrimination
1: claims for, for a you know sort of employer with a you know religious mm-hmm. objection. Yeah. Although the, for state discrimination law, RIFRA doesn't constitutionally yeah. apply because of Bernie. So yeah, you'd have you'd have to yeah. run that through the Constitution. Yeah. So last question though is like, is this case a fraud?
0: Yeah. So I'm, this is a little bit weird. There was this thing that came out right around the case was decided about how there was like some something in the record of someone like requesting a gay website, gay wedding website, same sex yeah. marriage website, whatever we however we want to yeah. describe this, but that appears
1: to be phony. But maybe not. Does it matter? So, right. So th- yeah. this is a pre-enforcement challenge yeah. decided on a bunch of stipulated facts, which is like totally orthodox. Yeah. Right. Especially under the First Amendment, under modern ripeness doctrine, SBA list versus Dreyfus and Abba labs and whatever. If there's a law that prohibits your speech, you're allowed to say, "I would like to speak, but I'm not going to speak because <laughs> I would get in trouble." Please say the laws unconstitutional so I can speak. Right. We don't make you speak first and then get in trouble. And so, but then you have to show that there's like some risk that the law will be enforced against you. And she says, look, this is Colorado, masterpiece cake shop land. Like, of course, they're going to force it against me. But then to supplement that claim, she says, and look, some guy, some some somebody asked for my services for a same sex wedding uh, on like my random web form. And then I guess, yeah, somebody at the New Republic maybe yeah. called him up. He said, no, I didn't. Yeah. Now, I guess maybe he did and he forgot. Maybe a friend signed him up and he forgot. Maybe Ms. Smith signed herself up and somehow invented him. I don't know. But, it seems like none of that really was, matters.
0: The, the the alleged person who allegedly filled out the form is married to a person of the opposite sex, so it seemed a little bit puzzling. Yeah, but yeah, no, I, I mean that was weird. I mean, I, you know, did was that something that one of the litigants, you know, did you know the lawyers did themselves to try to? I mean, who knows? It doesn't seem to matter though, as far as the court is concerned. Like, it it plays no role in the
1: opinion. Procedurally, it doesn't seem to matter, right? Right, like. Right. And yet I mean, not to be a slave to the discourse, but this produced like a huge fury of people, you know, even even like I was talking to sophisticated lawyers who are not otherwise whose minds have not otherwise been consumed by by bad things, who seem to think something really weird had gone on here in terms yeah. of justiciability. And maybe it's just I mean, it's true that, that the case involves a bunch of stipulated facts and a pre enforcement challenge. Yeah. But but that's and I, I, maybe we shouldn't litigate cases that way. I'm open to the view that we should yeah. turn back the clock on ripeness doctrine. But but that just didn't seem to bother me at all.
0: Yeah, it seems like uh, it, it seems like if, if it was something that that really called into question some premise of the majority opinion, sure. But it doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to have anything to do with what the majority does. And, yeah. and generally, we we seem to think pre-enforcement challenges are okay. So I don't know. It's it's one of these things where like people there's a lot of effort to gin up various kinds of outrage at the court right now. And yeah. some of it lands and some of it doesn't. And I worry that, you know, we need to, you know, people who are, you know, not happy with the court should maybe pick battles a little bit better.
1: Yeah. Although what worries me is that, that the battles that are successful, that, that are like accurate, like the things that are actions we should worry about, worried about and the battles that like successfully catch fire are necessarily the same, like this one, this one, I mean, I don't know, nothing's going to happen yeah. in the end, but this one sort of, got a lot more people to to say nasty things about the court than yeah many of them do well it kind of relates to our you know Supreme Court ethics discussions we've had
0: which is just that like there's some real there can be mismatch in terms of what people get uh, upset about and what we think actually matters the most and that's unfortunate yeah yeah maybe it's not just diluting it's actually kind of distracting because this one seemed to really make people mad even though I, I don't know, it just seems like focus on the substance of the decision, right? Like there's, you know, there's plenty you could choose to disagree with, and just a sort of, you know, she writes. I'd say I'd say it's an angry dissent, right? She doesn't yeah. respectfully dissent; she just says I dissent. I hate to call these things angry, so I. I'm... Okay, Does that but... that sounds like too judgy.
1: Judgmental. What? I just think it's very hard to read tone on these yeah. things, and we often are reading
0: our own. Okay, something. but at least if you if you drop the respectfully for my dissent, you're at least aren't you like trying to send a message that
1: I forget some people are some people kind of right, but it, okay. it's a it's a long non-respectful. No, I, I, yeah, I, I mean I'll go to you. Okay, yeah. Well, I just feel like I mean I think talking the substance is always good, yeah. right? And then I feel like there's always this when you lose the substance, then it's like aha, there's a cheat code. My yeah. journalist found out that yeah. it was all based on a lie, and that yeah. will yeah. I mean and, and um, this is not the province of any particular side of of political yeah. discourse like everybody wants the cheat code. Yeah. Yeah. I guess in terms of
0: what I think about the case like it really does a lot of it comes down to that question of how broadly it's going to go because if you do think about it narrowly I think I could say okay you know maybe this we can just all agree that this is speech and you know compelled speech I can live with the rule that says you just don't get to compel people to do that but if we end up saying now all of a sudden all anti-discrimination law is unconstitutional because it violates people's freedom to choose to whom to associate with whoever they will, I'm starting to get increasingly nervous.
1: Yeah. There is an intellectual challenge like that, not to all anti-discrimination yeah. law, but to like half of anti-discrimination law. Because yeah. I think there used to be, it used to be more in vogue to divide, you know, say some anti-discrimination law is kind of about substance, like, you know, the meat and potatoes question, like when you stop in this town at night, is there someplace you can go? And then some is about dignity and symbolic harms. And so you could imagine a broad based first amount challenge to all of the symbolic discrimination law. Like if you could get a website somewhere else that was just as good, you know, that's all that should matter. That came up a little bit in Masterpiece Cake Shop. Maybe that's the, maybe that's the Brown versus Board of Education of the ADF. I have no idea. That would be, that would be a revolution. Yeah. Okay, well, it's a
0: case that's going to, you know, provoke pretty strong reactions. And, you know, for that reason, I think, you know, when the show we I think we we try to kind of just get less into the kind of like, up or down on the kind of really big kind of hot button social issues cases, because I feel like I have less to contribute on that. You can, you know, kind of figure out what you think about it. And our job is just to kind of, I don't know, clear the clear the ground so people can figure out their own views.
1: Yeah, I just think they're boring,
0: usually. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because they, they're not, they they cease to be about, their, the, they're less about the law and more about, you know, our underlying views about the...
1: I mean, it, it depends the state. case. I thought yeah. we spent a long time on Dobbs and Bruin last year, and like, that was justified. I guess. We, we I feel like we
0: talked a lot about the stuff, like, surrounding Dobbs, uh, right? I like, think it was,
1: was our longest episode to date at the time, was our yeah. Dobbs Bruin episode.
0: But we didn't, like, really get into the meat of, like, substantive due process we talked about like the leak and a bunch of other stuff i don't know okay well plenty more we could say but after having two nearly two hour episodes i think we should cut this one at merely you know an hour plus keep it
1: unpredictable dan
0: Okay. Thanks very much for listening. If you like the show and want to encourage us to do more frequent episodes uh, such as we're doing now, positive feedback helps. So rate and review on the Apple podcast app or elsewhere. Send us positive feedback at pod at dividedargument.com. Buy our merchandise at store.dividedargument.com. Check out uh, our website at dividedargument.com where we post Transcripts of the episodes, uh, not immediately, but very shortly uh, after they come down, for those of you who who don't love to listen to our uh, mellifluous voices, and you can leave us a voicemail, ideally in song format, at
1: 314-649-3790. Thanks to the Constitutional Law Institute for sponsoring all of our endeavors. If you have you know cases you're really hoping that we'll catch up on that we might otherwise uh, neglect, you know. Write in, cast your votes. Dan probably won't listen to you, but I might. Maybe I can influence him.
0: And if there's a long gap between this and our next episode, it's because we're being tried in a joint criminal trial.